Okay, one announcement before we begin. There will be a deacons meeting immediately following Bible class this uh, this evening. And for those of you who weren't at prayer meeting, you need to put on your prayer list as top priority the uh, situation regarding the building. We have a lot of problems. Those of you who were here on Sunday know that we had problems with mold downstairs, and there's a number of other structural problems that... Uh, this church has been held together by the grace of God, so we don't know how much longer that's going to hold out. The grace of God will hold out, but we don't know how much longer the building will hold out. So make that a matter of prayer. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we're going to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer. If you need to use 1 John 1, nine, make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to take in the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this evening to fellowship around the teaching of your word, to spend our time learning how to think biblically, learning how to renovate and overhaul our thinking from the foundation up in terms of your word, that it is you have addressed every area of life in your scripture. It's not simply a matter of addressing so-called spiritual things, but that ultimately everything goes back to the realities of this universe, and you are the one who created things the way they are, and therefore our starting point for understanding anything in the created realm is your revelation. Father, now we pray that we would be able to understand the things we study, be able to see the implications of what we uh, pull out of the scriptures, and that we would be willing to accept these things and apply them in our own lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. This afternoon I got jolted out of my study while I was trying to crank away at tonight's uh, lesson with a phone call, unusual phone call. I don't get too many like this. I've had three or four over the past couple of, or the past four or five years since I've been here. And it was uh, Pastor Theme from Houston. Now I have not made a point of saying anything about the current situation down there because there's so much rumor going around, going around. But many of you have been profoundly influenced in your life because of uh, his influence in his teaching. The man has had 53 years of pastoral ministry in one pulpit, which is an unusual thing in and of itself. And the strength and the uh, dynamics of his particular ministry go far beyond uh, any pastor that I know of in this uh, generation. He has been able to impact not only a number of men, I think over 2,000 men have come out of Baraka Church who have gone into the pastoral ministry, but many of those men went on to uh, national and international fame, men such as Hal Lindsey, who uh, through his book, Late Great Planet Earth, and he's written a number of others, and I understand from uh, Pastor Theme today, just has a new one out on faith that's supposed to be quite good, which he dedicated to uh, Pastor Theme but that uh, also men such as Chuck Swindoll and others, some of whom have stayed consistent with what they learned from uh, Pastor Theme. Others have departed to some degree or another, but even though they may shift their theology a little bit, they never seem to get away from the general influence that he had on their lives. And so he has uh, influenced missions. He's many uh, dozens and 
probably hundreds of men have gone out into the mission field over the years or at least into uh, full-time Christian work. So he has had a remarkable ministry. Earlier this summer, due to some health problems, the doctors told him that he should no longer have a public uh, ministry or a pulpit ministry. He should quit uh, speaking publicly due to the fact that his health was failing. He turned 86 this last April. That his, uh, he was very weak physically and he was also suffering, uh, some other problems. So it was announced at Baraka Church in Houston in, at the end of Ju- uh, July, or at the end of June rather, that he would, uh, no longer be in the pulpit. His official retirement has not been announced due to some administrative decisions and so during the, uh, time being, and at least for the foreseeable future, his son Bobby is teaching on Sunday mornings, and they're showing uh, older videotapes on Thursday night. That man has had a profound influence on my life because one of my earliest memories goes back to him. My folks were going to Baraka Church, uh, or began going to Baraka Church shortly after the time he came to be pastor on May 1st, 1950. He became the pastor of Baraka Church after graduating from Dallas Seminary. And at that time, there were a lot of people in Houston who were very positive to the teaching of the Word. And the church really exploded during an, un, during the 50s and under his ministry. When he came, there were only 35 or 40 people, or members actually, in the church. There may have been a few others that were non-members. And he began to teach on Sunday morning and on Wednesday night, and soon the positive volition was such that they wanted a Friday night class, so he started a Friday night class and a Monday night class at University of Houston, Tuesday night class at Rice, and I think he had a Thursday night class now at Dow Chemical, and, and eventually they brought all of those into the church. But it grew tremendously in the 50s until in 1958, I believe, I think, 59, they moved to their current location. And it was on uh, that Mother's Day of 1959 that was their first day at their current building. I don't know what he taught that Mother's Day, but being Mother's Day, he may have said something about the responsibility of parents. He used to never even nod nod his head toward any of those holidays. And uh, most of us who have been influenced by him are the same way. And uh, we just teach straight through and sort of, ignore all those things, but he must have said something that parents have a responsibility to give the gospel to their kids, because that afternoon, my parents sat me down and gave me the gospel, and I remember that because there was only a two-week period in there between the time we moved into that church and the time we moved out of that house, so I can pretty much pinpoint that date. I was six years old and just completing first grade. My earliest memory is wrestling on the floor with him and his son Bobby back when oh, I was probably three years old. Bobby was five or six at the time, and uh, my dad had just been transferred to uh, Toronto, Canada, so we were about to leave town and had gone over to have dinner. My folks had gone over to have dinner with them, and uh, so we'd get down. Back in those days, uh, the colonel, as we all call him, was very accessible. And in later years, as the church got so large, it's not possible for a pastor to be that accessible. But back in those days, it was. And I remember in high school, dropping by unannounced at his house and and saying, Well, Colonel, i got a paper to write on this subject in history. you got anything that I can read or anything that I can look at? And he would give me material. And then when I was in college, he got me started reading military history. And I would go by on my way back on a weekend from college and I would drop off what I had read and pick up another load of books and take them back and read through those. So he has had a tremendous impact on not just my ministry but on the ministry of uh, thousands of other men. So this is a real ending of an era but it's also the passing of a torch because those thousands of men that have gone out there, uh, one of whom, George Meisinger, who's the president of of a Chafer Seminary, has started a seminary to continue that legacy. And so his real legacy goes beyond just the the thousands of hours. I think they've got 10,000 hours 
on uh, tape down at down at RB Theme Bible Ministries, but it goes beyond that to all of the men that he has influenced, and through those men, probably hundreds of thousands of other believers, and challenging them to a much higher level of understanding of the Word of God and the Christian life. He is the one who gave me the challenge through his teaching, not because he personally called me aside, but back in the late 60s, they had a teen class at Baraka, and he used to get all the teens in there, and that was a huge group. That church seats about 1,000 to 1,100, and it would be about half to three-quarters full on a Wednesday night with teens from all over the city of Houston, not all of whom came normally went to Baraka Church. And I knew that my uh, I had some cousins that went to a Baptist church, but they were always there on Wednesday night. And he used to teach for about 15 minutes, and he would give five or six points on something, and then he would call on somebody. He would call on people for other reasons too, especially if they got tired of looking at somebody's ear and they were talking to somebody else. He would call them down, but he would call on somebody. And I remember one summer, it was like you could set your clock by it at 8.15. It was Robbie Dean, stand up and give me the first five points and such and such a doctrine. And it was during that time, learning to take notes and getting into the Word, that I first really began to think that I might have the gift of pastor-teacher. And so that, that set me on the course, which has become the course of my life. So this is really a time that uh, uh, is a passing of a, uh, uh, the baton to many men and the ending of an era. And then I had the great privilege when I uh, uh, moved back to Houston in 1990 for him to ask me to come on uh, the staff at TNP and help write the books uh, and revise many of the basic books that had been written earlier. So the influence that he's had on my life and my ministry go far beyond just a simple role of a pastor who's stood in the pulpit and taught. So this is a time for us to pray for. I know many of you know are familiar with his ministry, and you can continue to pray for him and pray for his family and pray for uh, the church down there as they uh, move forward, because this is a time that uh, is quite a sentimental time and emotional time for them as well. Whenever a church has had a pastor for 50 years or more, it is always a traumatic experience, no matter how much you may expect it to happen, no matter how much you may realize it's going to happen. When it actually does happen and that man steps down, it is a traumatic time. And people will go through a grieving process, and, and uh, so we just need to pray for that church. Anyway, this evening we're going to continue our study in Genesis 2, so open your Bibles to Genesis 2, verse 8. Genesis 2, verse 8, and we are going to move past the creation of man and the the rehearsal of the specific creation of the male, Adam, in the first uh, part of the chapter, verses 4 through 7, to the environment in which God placed the man, in verses 8 through 17. Verse 8 we read, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the beginning of perfect environment, and although I haven't tied this into dispensations yet, I will eventually, this is the beginning of the dispensation of perfect environment, which extends from the creation of man to the fall. And it is in this time period that we see the responsibility given to the man that will be the testing issue for this particular dispensation, I remind you a dispensation is a, an administration of God's plan and program in human history. The word dispensation itself does not emphasize a time frame. It emphasizes an administration, and that administration has a purpose. It has a test, and it has a responsibility for, for the human race. And it is in this section that we see that responsibility first laid down. But we get the name perfect environment because God in his goodness, which is a function of his righteousness and his justice and his love, God in his goodness provides a perfect environment for man, perfect in every possible way. 
We had seen the creation of, ma- of the man in verse 7, and now God creates a place for the man. First he created the man, then he created the environment for the man. Now he had created the overall environment in Genesis chapter 1, that is the environment of the earth itself, and all of the various systems on the earth, the, the, the biosphere, the atmosphere, the hydrosphere. But now God develops the specific environment for man, which is a, a garden. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God created the plants and the trees at the end of the third day. Verse 12 says, The earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, the tree that yields fruit, whose seed in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And now we see that God plants a garden, and he causes to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Some people think there's a contradiction here. There's no contradiction. God had created all the tree kinds back on the third day. And now he's going to take the seed. See, it doesn't say in this text that he created bara or even created asa. What it says is, first, he planted a garden. And second, that he caused to grow. So he took that which he had already created, took the seed from those trees, and like a good gardener, an excellent gardener, he begins to design the uh, immediate environment for the human race. We're told in verse 8 that the action is performed by the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. And the term Yahweh, Yahweh, excuse me, the Lord God, the term Lord there is, in most Bibles, uppercase, and that indicates a translation of the Tetragrammaton Yahweh, which to a Jew, and remember the initial audience for this book were the Jews before they went into the land. And the name Yahweh would remind them that God is the, this is the God who entered into a legal contractual arrangement with them in the Mosaic Law. And the same God who created Israel is the God who created everything and who created the human race. And so you can't separate what God is doing in Israel from what he initially did in the garden. Furthermore, the name Yahweh is intimately associated with the first commandment, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. And that indicates a moral or ethical element to the name God. And so even though we do not have the name Yahweh mentioned in the first chapter, which outlines the uh, seven-day creation week, we have it first mentioned in the second chapter where there's going to be brought to our attention the ethical mandate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as you read the Lord God, it's not just simply describing his name, but there are implications of that name that are implicit in the narrative of Genesis chapter 2. So the Lord God plants a garden, and here the word is the Hebrew word nata. Nata looks like this in the Hebrew... N-A-T-A, and then what looks like a single or reverse apostrophe there for the Hebrew letter ayin, and this means to plant, to establish, to fix, to stretch out. It's a normal word that was used for planting trees or to plant a vineyard, and it was used figuratively or metaphorically for the planting of a nation, such as the planting of the nation Israel. God is the one who, just as he planted the nation Israel, he is the one who uh, planted the garden and planted the, uh, and established the first ethical test or volitional test in the Garden of Eden. Then we read that there he placed, he planted the garden toward the east in Eden. Actually, in a more, a slightly more literal rendering, what we read in the Hebrew is he planted a garden in Eden from the east. And literally that means he planted a garden in Eden. So Eden is a larger, is viewed as a larger area 
And as a subsection of this, you have a garden planted, and it is designated as being in the east. So let's say we have draw a circle here. This is an area which is defined in Scripture as Eden. Now, if you look at the passage, we're not going to do it this evening, but if you look at the passage in Ezekiel 28, which describes the fall of Satan, it says that you were in Eden, the garden of God. So the term Eden, then, is tied in that passage to the garden of God, not what we call the garden of Eden, where... uh, Adam and Isha were placed. God has Eden, and this is a place where God dwells on the earth. Now we can go through a lengthy study on the dwelling of God on the earth, and we will eventually do that. He dwells in the garden. He continues to dwell, and he places the cherubim outside to guard the path to the tree of life, but they prevent man from entering Eden. He finally removes himself and his presence from the earth, after uh, or before the flood. Remember, it's not until after the flood in Genesis 9 that God establishes or delegates judicial authority to the human race. Now, if we're right, and I think we are, that the population on the earth prior to the Noahic flood was at least 2.5 billion, maybe double that. Those are conservative estimates. Remember, the reason it's so large is because you had up to nine generations living at one time. You people lived 950 years. Just think about it. 950 years ago would have been about 1150 or 1150, 1175 uh, A.D. And just think if nobody had died since 1175 A.D., how many people would live on the earth? It would be enormous. So you have a population that's quite large, and there was no judicial authority. Judicial authority isn't delegated until after the flood. Who handled judicial operations? Well, the judicial operations in Scripture are usually indicated by the use of the word sword. The only sword you have in the first three chapters of Genesis is the cherub that's placed outside the garden. So apparently God uh, directly and through his angels governed and exercised uh, a judicial function before the fall. Now that's based on very skimpy evidence, but you have the statement in the King James says, My spirit in Genesis six three, my spirit will not strive with man any longer. And that word translated strive in the King James Version is a hapox legomena, which is a technical term for a word that is used only one time in the literature. It's very difficult to figure out what a word means if it's only used one time, because word definitions are determined not by a dictionary, but by usage. Dictionaries simply reflect word usage. And when you look at cognate languages such as Ugaritic or Phoenician or Akkadian, the word that is used there in Hebrew that's translated strive means to dwell. And so God says, I'm not going to dwell with man anymore, and he removed his presence at the time of the flood. Then his presence comes back in Exodus when he indwells the the, uh, tabernacle and is enthroned among the cherubim at the Ark of the Covenant. And then his presence leaves and departs when Israel goes negative. And Ezekiel sees the vision of the Shekinah glory. Shekinah means the dwelling presence of God. Sees the glory of the indwelling presence of God depart. And it returns at the incarnation. And then at the incarnation there's a departure at the ascension. And then the Holy Spirit returns. And in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit he sets up a temple in the believer's body for the indwelling of Jesus Christ. And then you have the return of Jesus. The the indwelling Jesus Christ, of course, is going to leave at the rapture and return at the second coming where he is personally going to rule and reign during the millennial kingdom. So that's sort of a panorama of the indwelling presence of God on the earth. So God dwelt in Eden, and somewhere on the east side of Eden, God plants a garden for the habitation of man. And in verse 9, 
verse 9, we read something about that, uh, that garden. Out of the ground, these, this describes the mechanics of the planting. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for, good for food. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things there, that God places the man he had farmed, formed in this, in this garden. And it's, the text states that he caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. And the key word we want to hone in on there is that word every. God does, God is not skimpy with his resources. God is not one who withholds any good thing from his people. And out of love, God provides everything and beyond everything that man needs. He causes to grow every tree that is one pleasing to the sight. So this then becomes a basis for developing a theology of aesthetics. Aesthetics is a word for beauty. This develops a theology of beauty. God is not a God who simply makes things because they're functional, but he creates things that have beauty. They're uh, attractive to the eye. It's not simply enough to make it so that it works, but so that it looks good as well. It's pleasing to the sight and also good for food. He doesn't just grow every tree that's good for food. There is both an aesthetic pleasure to the trees, and they provide everything uh, that is necessary for food. So God provides in his love, he provides everything that mankind would need for food. He goes beyond that. All categories of, of uh, fruit were available and vegetables because man was a vegetarian at this point. And he doesn't just supply just a few things, but he supplies an abundance. And then we're told the tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I want to wait and come back to the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when we get some more specificity when we get down to to verse 16 and 17, especially on the tree of knowledge. But before we go any further, honing in on the word every, I want to cover the doctrine of sufficiency, that God's provision for man is always sufficient. This is one of the most poorly understood doctrines and one of the most poorly applied doctrines in history. See, sufficiency doesn't mean something is given just enough or partially, but that God provides everything necessary for man. He is going to provide all the information man needs. This would apply to to Revelation. I frequently get in conversations with people who say, well, the Bible is great, and it's God's instruction to us in the realm of of the spiritual life and in the realm of of, uh, the Christian life. But it goes far beyond that. While the Bible's primary intent is to instruct man on the nature of God and his relationship with God, it includes within the total orb of the Word of God information that gives us the basis for exploring almost every discipline in life. And so we always start from the Scriptures and whatever the Scripture may say about something. And some things that's fairly obvious and other things that's less obvious. But that just means that we have to use the minds that God gave us in order to explore, develop, and understand these things. So let's look at the doctrine of sufficiency. First of all, let's define the term. Point number one, sufficiency means there is enough to meet a situation. There is enough to accomplish the purpose or accomplish the task. So in its root meaning, sufficiency means there is enough to meet the situation. Whatever the situation may be, whatever the problem may be, whatever the difficulty may be, whatever the situation may require, God has given enough. Now for some people, point number two, sufficiency may imply barely enough. But enough is enough. You don't need any more once you have enough. I mean, if you if something's going to cost uh, $100 and you have $100 in your pocket, you've got enough. Anything else is just excess. It may be nice to have a few extra dollars in your pocket, but you don't need any more than that. So sufficiency means that there is enough. It's not just barely enough. But throughout Scripture, 
God's grace is always characterized by more than enough. It's always characterized by abundance. God's grace is always characterized by abundance. So sufficiency means enough, but it's more than enough. Point number three. Prior to the fall, sufficiency came from God's love. Let's look at God's God's character in terms of the essence box. And we'll just look at the left-hand column. We see that God is sovereign. He is righteous plus our just love, and He is eternal life. Now, we always connect His righteousness, justice, and love together because that relates to God's integrity. God cannot love an object unless it conforms to his perfect righteousness. Well, in the garden, when God created man in his image and according to his likeness, man was perfectly righteous. So there's no problem, there's no discontinuity between God's righteousness and man's righteousness. So God was free to show his love towards man. And it is a direct love, and that is the point of contact prior to the fall. So his love provides a sufficient environment for the human race. Now, point number four, sufficiency after the fall comes from God's grace. Grace is the expression of God's love to someone who doesn't deserve it, someone who hasn't merited it. And after the fall, man is minus R, and God is not free to love a sinner because his righteousness is in conflict with that love. So something has to take place to solve the problem of God's righteousness. That eventually was taking place on the cross when Jesus Christ's death propitiated the Father, satisfied his righteousness and justice. So grace is the application of God's love to an unmerited object. Point number three, sufficiency that before the fall came directly from God's love. Sufficiency, point number four, sufficiency after the fall comes from God's grace. Grace is not a factor before the fall because man was perfectly righteous. He was not an, he was not a fallen object. He was not, uh, it was not an unmerited, uh, love. Point number five, to bring all that together, love is the point of contact, therefore, between God and man before the fall. Justice, then, becomes the point of contact for man after the fall. See, this is the essential problem with liberalism. Liberal theology wants to take the love of God and juxtapose it to the righteousness of God, and they always ask the question, how can a loving God let all these things happen? How can a loving God send his creatures to hell? And they just don't understand love. And my question is, and the question you ought to respond with, is how can a righteous God let any dirty, rotten, damned sinners in his presence? That's the real issue. It's not his love. See, the problem is his righteousness. So righteousness is the point of contact, and righteousness has to be resolved before God is free to show his personal love to a, to a fallen creature. And that is resolved at salvation when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to the believer so that he is saved not on the basis of anything he has done, but totally and exclusively on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because you're no better a sinner five minutes after you were saved than you were five minutes before you were saved. There's nothing that's changed in terms of your own righteousness. What's changed is you now possess and are covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ, and possessing that, you're declared just before God. So after salvation, the love of God becomes the uh, point of contact, the personal love of God becomes the point of contact uh, for the believer. Okay, point six. Let's look at a couple of il- a couple of illustrations in the Scripture of God's sufficiency. One would be when we won't turn to any passages, but the first illustration is God's provision of manna to the Jews when they're leaving Israel. He always gave them enough. 
Now, some might say, well, that's not very sufficient. They just had to eat the same thing day in, day out. Yes, but God was testing them. See, sometimes God does barely give us enough, but it's always enough. They didn't need any more. That manna that came provided every bit of nutrition that they needed. It was completely nourishing. It had all the vitamins, uh, best source of vitamins ever. It had every bit of, uh, of protein that they needed. Everything was probably in a perfect mixture. And they were given just enough for that day. And then if they ate any more, or if they gathered any more in the morning, and they had it left over, then the the uh, weevils and, and the maggots got in there, and it started uh, corrupting overnight, and it turned into a foul-smelly mess the next day. Because God was teaching them the principle of sufficiency. You don't have to hoard. You don't have to uh, save things up for tomorrow. I will provide every day what you need. He was teaching the principle of the sufficiency of His grace. There was always going to be enough, and they would never go hungry and they would always be taken care of. So the manna illustrates the principle of the sufficiency of God's grace. And in the New Testament, when we see Jesus feeding the 4,000 and feeding the 5,000, we see the miracle of the loaves where he feeds them. In Matthew 14, 30, 13 to 21, we see the feeding of the 5,000. And after he fed the 5,000, there were 12 full baskets left over. See, he gave more than enough. God's grace is sufficient, but it frequently gives an abundance, an excess. There is always enough. Sometimes there is more. So under point six, God's abundance and his sufficiency is illustrated with the manna to the Jews in the wilderness and then the feeding of the 5,000, Matthew fourteen thirteen to 21, with the excess uh, fish and loaves in the twelve baskets. Point number seven: God's salvation is abundant. To, I mean, God's sufficiency is abundant to all in salvation. God's sufficiency is abundant to all in salvation. Salvation is not for believers only. That is a uh, heretical doctrine promulgated by. Five-point hyper-Calvinists who believe in limited atonement, that Christ died only for the elect. And for them, they will often say, well, then Jesus, you're saying Jesus just spilled his blood on Calvary. He just wasted his death. If there's somebody he died for that doesn't get to heaven. Well, you see, God often provides above and beyond like he did with the uh, 12 baskets. And there were 12 baskets left over. Is that a waste? No, he was demonstrating the abundance of his grace. So let's look at some passages on on limited atonement. First of all, 1 Timothy 2.6, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He gave himself as a ransom for all, not just uh, not just believers. This is made even more clear in 1 Timothy 4.10. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And then 2 Corinthians 5.14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. So we see the sufficiency of God's grace in salvation. The death of Christ went above and beyond. It provided salvation for every member of the human race, even those uh, who reject him, even those who do not put their faith alone in Christ alone. And the same thing is, is reiterated in numerous other passages where it emphasizes the fact that Jesus Christ died for those who are false teachers and died for those who have rejected him. Our eighth point is that the sufficiency of God's grace extends to believers in all areas of the spiritual life, especially in the arena of testing. The sufficiency of God's grace extends to believers in all areas of the spiritual life, especially in testing. God knew before eternity passed, or God knew before you were created from eternity past, that 
you would face various trials and testing in life. He knew every test, every difficulty. He knew how long you would be unemployed. He knew how long you would uh, go through various uh, romantic problems and relationship problems. He knew how long you would face financial difficulty, and he provided for that in the Scriptures in a remarkable way so that you would have the ability to endure those difficult times in such a way that by applying the word you could have perfect happiness and stability and be a witness and testimony to both other uh, believers and, and other um, and unbelievers as well as to the angels second corinthians 5:14 we are Second Corinthians 9, 8, we read, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that always having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for every good work. Now, the interesting thing about the context of Second Corinthians 9, 8 is it's in the context of giving. And it's talking to believers who don't have a whole lot. And it's saying that even when you give, God is going to, God's grace is going to provide for you so that you will still have an abundance. Somehow the money's going to last. God is going to take care of that. Not if you're irresponsible and you're giving, of course. There's always the people who come along and say, well, just give it all and God's going to take care of you. But if you're responsible in your giving, God is going to take care of you as a believer. In testing, the Apostle Paul faced the thorn in the flesh demon, and in 2 Corinthians 12.9, after praying to God three times to remove that thorn in the flesh demon, God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's grace always provides enough so that even though the test isn't removed and God did not remove that test from that thorn in the flesh demon, it continued for some time, how long we don't know, but he did not remove the negative physical circumstances, he did not remove the adversity, and what he was teaching Paul was even in the midst of that adversity you can relax and you can exchange your strength for my strength and you can utilize a faith rest drill and you can move forward and grow and advance as you understand the the uh, provision of my grace. So under point number eight, the sufficiency of God's grace extends to all believers in all areas of the spiritual life, especially in testing. Now the conclusion we arrive at is that God provided a perfect environment that supplied everything that man would need everything that he would possibly need for his daily sustenance and provision. This would include not only the physical environment, but also the spiritual environment and the information. God is going to give Adam all the information he needs, He didn't, which doesn't mean that he gave him everything he could possibly know. He didn't explain the theory of relativity to him. He didn't go through and explain calculus to him. There's a lot of information that God could have given Adam, but he didn't. Sufficiency means he gave him everything that he needed so that he could accomplish the task And then as the Lord visited with them every day, he gave them additional information. But from the very beginning, he gave them all the information they need. That means it wasn't up to Adam to figure out if what God said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was really true. So in these first two verses, in verses 8 and 9, we see the establishment of the perfect environment and the sufficiency of that environment. And in the midst of that environment, and that doesn't mean in the mathematical middle or geometrical middle, but in the uh, center of the garden, within the uh, same general vicinity, God planted two trees. One is the tree of life, and the other was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, there is certainly something tantalizing about both of these trees. We don't know that much about them, and there's one way to truly speculate about the tree of the the tree of life, but we don't know that much about it. Does this mean that Adam and Isha would not have lived forever, and they needed to eat from that uh, tree every day to make sure that they would have eternal life, or is there something special about that that applies to quality of life? I personally think that it applies to quality of life because of what we'll see 
in a minute in Revelation chapter 2. But the idea of the tree of life is certainly found in, in numerous uh, scriptures, and we see this mentioned in such passages as Proverbs 3.18, referring to a uh, spiritually mature woman. She is a tree of life. To those, or Here it's referring to wisdom, uh, personified as a woman. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happier all who retain her. So the analogy is between wisdom, uh, personified as a woman, uh, wisdom, which is Bible doctrine and the application of doctrine, wisdom is a tree of life. So there you have the idea not simply of extension of life, because a believer would have ongoing life, but here it would have to do with the quality of life that comes from the application of wisdom. This is again, this same metaphor is again used in Proverbs 8.12. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and find out knowledge and discretion. I must have left something out in this particular reference. Let me turn there. Proverbs 8.12. Well, I don't see anything, so I just typed in the wrong verse. We'll have to correct that later. But Proverbs 15.4, wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. So there it is not talking about simply the concept of externality or, or, excuse me, eternality of life, but it's talking about the quality of life when there is no gossip, no slander, no maligning, no sins of the tongue. A wholesome tongue is like a tree of life. Then we have the concept of tree of life mentioned uh, further on in, in Scripture, and that is in Revelation 21 when it comes to the uh, New Jerusalem. And he, John is writing in Revelation 21.10 and says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. We see, we'll also see in Genesis the uh, uh, emphasis on precious stones in the garden, and this is a reference. This reminds us that there's a similarity between the future eternal state and what was in the original garden. Revelation 21.21 states, The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And gold is present in the original state. And then we see, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of the street, Revelation 22.2, In the middle of its street, And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And someone once asked me, says, why is that the healing of the nations? If it's in the millennial kingdom and the eternal state, there's no sickness. Why do they need to be healed? And the idea there is not healing from sickness, but the idea of that which positively promotes strength and health. And so what we have is the idea here that there will be a tree of life and somehow that contributes to the quality of life in the eternal state. Now, if you go back to the first part of Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 7, in the first letter to the seven churches, it's a letter addressed to the church at Ephesus. After the letter is uh, written... The final statement is, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. And an overcomer is not someone who believes. An overcomer is a believer who has applied doctrine and advances to spiritual maturity. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life. So there is a special reward for mature believers that they have access to the tree of life. Other believers, believers who are failures, do not have this same access to the tree of life. So it has something to do with the quality of life, not simply the extension or eternality of life uh, throughout eternity.
I will give to the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So this is in a a special area within heaven that is open to access from mature church age uh, believers. So the tree of life certainly has a an ongoing uh, presence throughout Scripture, even though there's not a lot said about it. The tree of life also, sometimes called the plant of life, also remains in sort of the cultural or historical memory of the human race and pops up in many different ancient Near Eastern cultures. And there's a mention of a plant of life even in the uh, uh, Babylonian Gilgamesh epic. So these ideas are present, and the idea of a tree of life goes on, but the tree of life provided life, but the real test comes from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now the next verse, verse 10, gives us a geographical description. Geographical description of how God provides for the gar- for the garden. And this is t- as well tantalizing in terms of an understanding of the physics involved in the natural environment on the earth. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. So again we see this distinction between the garden itself and Eden. So let me go back to the original diagram we had here. Here the circle describes Eden, someplace on the planet, and that's where God dwelt. Out of his throne room, and I'm going to argue that it is his throne room, there is a river. Now we saw the mention of a river of life in Revelation 21 that flows out from the throne of God in the New Jerusalem. I think we see the same uh, parallel there. It's the same thing. We have a river of life that flows out of the throne of God, and then it divides. It divided into four rivers. Now, there's no place on earth today where you have this kind of an action. Rivers diverge, or, or excuse me, rivers converge. For example, you have the Missouri and the Mississippi and the Ohio and a number of other tributaries come into it, such as uh, the Red River out of Texas and uh, a few other rivers. These all come together and make up the Mississippi. They they converge. But what you have in Eden is a divergence. You have the water coming from one source, and then it splits and goes in four different directions, and it waters the earth. Now, a lot of people spend a lot of time speculating, getting into this passage and trying to figure out where Eden was located. And you'll always find somebody, some commentary, like what happened during the uh, last war in Iraq, talking about Babylon and Iraq as being the location of the Garden of Eden. If we believe in a worldwide flood at the time of Noah, and we're consistent with understanding the hydrodynamics of such an event, then we have to admit that there's no way we'll ever find the Garden of Eden. The geography of planet Earth was radically different after the flood from what it was before the flood. So what we read here, starting in verse 10... (coughs) A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden... And from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. And it flows around the whole land of Havilah. Now we don't know where Havilah is. We don't know what river this would have been. But we're told that there was an abundance of gold there. This tells us again that God provided a tremendous amount of natural resources for man, valuable metals and other other resources that could be used and developed by the human race as they were exercising the dominion mandate to go out and to control this planet that God put them in charge of. So you have the mention of gold. And gold also tells us that apparently there is a value to gold that is implicit. God creates it with a certain value. We don't know, not that it has an absolute value where it's always worth the same thing every time in history, but that that it is recognized by man as being one of the most valuable commodities we can have. 
and it's such is recognized by the scripture for example in Psalm 19 talks about the fact that God's word is to be desired more than fine gold so gold has an inherent value it's not just it isn't valuable simply because man has decided it's valuable but God has uh, created certain Resources, certain uh, precious metals, precious stones that are uh, inherently valuable. That ultimately will form the basis for economics. And some people need to get together and do some profound thinking in terms of how this affects economic theory. Uh, Genesis 2.12, we read, The gold of that land is good, the bedelium and the onyx stone are there. Now this is a passage that is also uh, difficult to translate and understand because we don't know exactly what bedelium was or what the onyx stone is. That's really a guess. They had to put something there, so I guess they decided the onyx stone was as good as anything. The bedelium that's mentioned there could either refer to a resin from a tree, a resin from a tree, or from a jewel. The jewel had kind of an amber tone to it, and so the resin from uh, certain trees picked up that name because it reminded them of the color of the jewel. Most likely refers to some form of precious stone, but we don't know uh, exactly what that is. The onyx stone, actually the Hebrew word simply mentions the onyx, or the shoham is the Hebrew, and it's variously translated as onyx stone, uh, chrysoprasus, beryl, or malachite. The Akkadian cognate seems to suggest a red stone or a cornelian. Nobody knows what it is. Uh, it's, this is reflecting an environment prior to the flood that is completely foreign to the environment after the flood. So we are, the, the thrust of this is that God provides a beautiful, a, an attractive environment that is filled with a remarkable array of natural resources that the man can develop under the guidance and authority of God as his representative on the earth. So that's the first river. Second river is the Gihon. Again, no idea what river that is. Blows the, around the whole land of Cush. Cush is a name later on used for Ethiopia, but that doesn't mean that's what it referred to initially. When we when Settlers and colonists first came to this country from England. They brought with them the names of familiar places and, and, and old homes in England. So when they came here, they named places Norwich and Boston and New London. And uh, they named the river the Thames, although nobody here can pronounce it right, and they call it the Thames. But all of these terms, and somebody really didn't know anything about French, and they called it Versailles instead of Versailles. But, you see, we have all these place names around here that are the names of places in England and in Europe. And we find them here in America. But that doesn't mean that if you're talking about uh, Boston or you're talking about Norwich, that you would get it confused with the Norwich in England. And that's what happened then. They got on the ark and they came out and it was a whole new world. And they named rivers that they saw after rivers that they remembered before. So there's a similarity in name, but they're not the same place. So don't think that this is trying to identify the location of Eden. The name of the third river is the Tigris. And it flows in, in the... Hebrew is called the Hittichel. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now notice they translate this in the present tense, but it's not really in the, in the present tense. That's added to make it look uh, readable in English. It's really talking about the way it was before the fall. Then in verse 15 we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it, and keep it. And we'll begin there next time, but we'll have some interesting word studies here because when God puts him in the garden, it's not the same word that we have back in verse 8 where he planted a garden and placed man there, Yassim. But here he, he puts him there. It's Noah. It's the word for rest. And it indicates that man can relax and rest in the perfect environment that God provided for him. And he can relax and rest in carrying out God's mandate 
And God's mandate doesn't mean that he's going to be a farmer. He's not there to cultivate and the garden and to farm the garden. That There are other meanings to those words that indicate that this is a temple type of environment and they're carrying on a priestly function. These words are loaded with worship overtones and with uh, the, the overtones of serving in a temple. So we'll come back to that uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word this evening, to understand how perfect your grace is, how it supplies everything we need, not simply physically, not simply spiritually, but intellectually. You have given us all the information we need that as those created in your image, we can continue to study, to dig, to learn about everything within your creation and everything you've given us in your word that we may uh, impact all of reality within the framework of your revelation. Father, we just uh, pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.